tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump in court today as he prepares to take the stand again as one of his own lawyers is acknowledging that she's telling him not to do it. Plus, a judge granting one woman an emergency abortion request in Texas, the first case of its kind since the fall of Roe versus Wade. But tonight, the Texas Attorney General is threatening to go after her doctor. Also, we're following dramatic new images that are coming out of Gaza as Israel is rounding up what appears to be dozens in a mass detention, all stripped down to their underwear. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. We begin with the breaking news tonight as the Justice Department has now filed a new criminal case against the president's son, Hunter Biden. We just got the details of this nine-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury. According to the special counsel, David Weiss, the president's son engaged in a four-year tax scheme. CNN's Evan Perez broke this story. Evan, walk us through what we are seeing in these nine charges. Well, Caitlin, this is a 56-page indictment that has been returned by a grand jury in Los Angeles, which is where uh, Hunter Biden lives, uh, just outside of Los Angeles. We're talking about three felony counts, felony tax counts. Uh, six of these counts uh, are misdemeanor tax counts. And what prosecutors say is that Hunter Biden engaged uh, in, four, in a, in a four-year uh, scheme to evade taxes, not paying his taxes uh, from 2016 to 2019. There were about $1.4 million that he was supposed to have paid and failed to pay during that period. Now, uh, during this period, according to prosecutors, he was spending all this money on luxury uh, goods, on uh, his personal expenses. He was using a company that he owned to essentially take money out and pay for things, including uh, a very uh, healthy habit, apparently, uh, on adult entertainment. He was spending more than $188,000, according to prosecutors, on adult entertainment uh, during this period. Uh, there are things here listed, uh, tax deductions that he attempted to claim uh, for for uh, things like wages, which ended up going to women that he was involved in, including, for example, uh, a $10,000 membership uh, in a sex club. These are the things that prosecutors allege Hunter Biden used his money for uh, instead of paying his taxes. Now, this again, we're going through uh, these documents uh, that were filed just this evening. Uh, we uh, knew, uh, Caitlin, that this was coming, obviously, because prosecutors, uh, David Weiss, uh, the special counsel, had telegraphed that this was coming uh, after this, uh, this plea deal had, had, uh, had collapsed uh, several months ago. But we also knew that uh, he was collecting uh, evidence from witnesses. We knew that they had brought in witnesses uh, to testify and to provide evidence uh, to that grand jury in Los Angeles in the last few weeks. So today now, we finally see these charges. Caitlin? Well, and Evan, you mentioned that plea deal that was supposed to happen, that, that Hunter Biden walked into court that day, I believe it was in August, thinking it, yeah. was, it was going to be signed off on by that judge. But, but it remind us just how we are still seeing the continued fallout right now for, from what happened that day in court. Right. I mean, for Hunter Biden, this has to be one of the most frustrating parts of this experience, obviously. He was minutes, minutes away from having this entire ordeal uh, put behind him. And instead, he's now facing these charges, all because a judge asked some very, frankly, appropriate questions. She uh, simply asked whether Hunter Biden and his lawyers understood 
what the terms of these deal of this deal entailed, and everything sort of fell apart after his lawyer uh, said essentially, "We don't have a deal anymore, Your Honor." And so that's how we are here. This was going to be put to bed uh, with a simple uh, a misdemeanor uh, deal, right? He was going to be plead guilty to a misdemeanor. And uh, if you remember, he was also uh, being investigated for uh, buying a gun during a time that he was prohibited, according to the federal government. Uh, he is facing, uh, Caitlin, those separate charges still in the state of Delaware. Uh, again, federal charges for owning a gun during a time he was prohibited. Yeah, I mean, two remarkable indictments here. Evan, as you read through this lengthy document, I know you just it just came out. We just got this after you broke the story. Yeah. Is there anything... To be clear in here, because I know this is the next question that's going to be asked on Capitol Hill, is there anything in here that, that ties back to the behavior of President Biden himself? Right. There's nothing in this in these 56 pages that relate to the president of the United States. Uh, all of this has to do with Hunter Biden, who was struggling with uh, substance abuse. He has uh, said himself that he was addicted to drugs during this period. He was not paying attention to his personal affairs, obviously, had a very personal, very messy personal life as detailed in these documents. And uh, none of this, though, goes to any of the allegations that Republicans have been making that there was some kind of uh, deal between Hunter Biden paying money that he was getting from his business deals overseas to the president or, you know, to the then vice president and now the president of the United States, his father, right? There's nothing in here on that. Of course, hey, Caitlin, you and I know this is not going to satisfy Republicans who still have a lot of questions. And uh, as you, of course, uh, know, uh, they have subpoenaed Hunter Biden to appear next week here in Washington. Hunter Biden has said he will appear, but only if he gets to testify publicly. They're asking for a uh, behind-the-scenes deposition, so there's a bit of a standoff over how uh, that might go forward in the next few days, Caitlin. We'll continue to track that. Evan Perez, great reporting. Thank you for that. And for more on breaking down what's in this indictment, CNN's former federal prosecutor and CN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here. And Ellie, I mean, this is just remarkable to think that the president's son could be on trial next year for two separate right. matters as his dad is running for re-election. Yeah, and the stakes are much higher now with this new indictment than they were before on the tax counts out of California. The original deal or near deal that they had that Evan just alluded to that fell apart only would have charged Hunter Biden with failure to pay his taxes, which is a misdemeanor. Now we're into felonies. There's three felonies here because of evasion and fraud. And the difference is if you owe taxes but you intentionally don't pay, just a misdemeanor, you're not going to jail in all likelihood. If you're convicted of a felony, because as this indictment alleges, there was specific fraud, they allege Hunter Biden intentionally took steps to try to fool essentially tax collectors. Now you're into felony territory. It's much more serious. If he gets convicted here, the guidelines will recommend a prison sentence of some nature. Well, and you were looking through this. I mean, they yeah. break down on the one page, the summary of the expenses. They look at his bank accounts. One of them that Evan was referencing, it says payments to various women. And it says that over from 2016 to 2019, it totaled $683,000. Adult entertainment over those that same time period, $188,000. I mean, why is that something that they're looking at when it comes to how he paid his taxes? Right. So enormous figures definitely going to gather some attention because of the salacious nature. But here's why it's legally relevant, because the allegation is he made these payments that had nothing to do with his business. And he tried to claim them as business expenses, which is a fairly common way that people commit tax fraud. And so 
The allegation here is that he did that to the tune of $1.4 million or so. And as a result, he's looking at vastly more serious charges now in California than he almost pled guilty to a couple months ago. Just remarkable. Ellie, stick around, though, because we have a lot of legal developments that we are following tonight. Speaking of courtrooms, it was appearance number nine for Donald Trump at his civil fraud trial here in New York today. All of this is what's leading up to what we believe will be his 10th appearance on Monday. That is when the former president is expected to take the witness stand once again. His lawyer says that she is advising him not to testify, given that gag order that has since been reinstated. He still wants to take the stand, even though my advice is at this point, you should never take the stand with a gag order. But he is so firmly against what is happening in this court. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump, which means he often dispenses of the legal advice that he has given. His own former lawyers will tell you that. This comes especially now as he is on what he sees as a mission to save his company and really his entire brand. We are told that he will take the stand again in his own defense on Monday as this civil trial is getting close to its end. Trump watched today as his legal team questioned its final expert witness. For someone who watched all of that happen, CNN's Kara Scannell was in the courtroom. Ellie Honig also back here with us. Uh, Kara, uh, I just want to see what, you know, Trump was obviously not on the witness stand, not talking today, but he did a lot of talking outside of court. So just for everyone who, who wasn't watching the courthouse closely today, this is what he said. This whole case is a fraud. It's election interference. It's keeping me here instead of Iowa and New Hampshire. And I should be right now in Iowa and New Hampshire, South Carolina. I should be sitting in a courthouse, and I don't have to sit here. I could just do whatever I want to do, but I want to make sure that you get the true story. To be clear, he did not have to be there. He was a spectator today. But I mean, what happened in the courtroom? Well, you know, it's interesting. He's attended nine days of the civil fraud trial. Today was the first day he attended any of the defense's case. So his own case that he was putting on. And he chose to come when they put on their final expert witness, a professor of accounting at New York University. And his testimony was probably the most unequivocal of any of the witnesses that Trump has put on, his strongest witness in a sense. And he testified without hesitation. He said he reviewed all these documents, reviewed testimony, he said that there was no evidence whatsoever of accounting fraud. He said there were no material or important misstatements on the financial statements. And these, you know, again, are the ones that the judge has already found to be fraudulent. And so the judge interrupted the questioning and said to him, you know, is your testimony that the attorney general's case is without merit? And he said, absolutely that is what my opinion is. So really favorable testimony to the former president. But, you know, as you know, that the the judge has already found that these financial statements are fraudulent. And what Trump is doing in this case, they have been pretty open about it, is that they're working toward laying the grounds for an appeal because they expect the judge will rule against them on these remaining six claims. And they're initially appealing his original findings. So, you know, a, a good day of testimony for Trump to sit there and listen to and to come out and be able to talk about because it was, you know, squarely in his favor. This person will be on the witness stand again tomorrow. Does the judge buy that? How does the judge see that testimony? So first of all, that piece of testimony, the expert saying there is no fraud, that's technically improper. That's the ultimate issue. That's up to the judge, or in some cases, not this one, the jury. What is proper for an expert like this to say is, well, they followed established accounting procedures. But what do you do if you're the judge and you have conflicting experts like we do here? Some experts for the AG's office said there's mass fraud. This guy's saying there's no fraud. This is what fact finders do. You have to decide who you're crediting based on the person's qualifications, based on how plausible their testimony is, based on common sense, based on the underlying support for it. And so I don't think it's much of a mystery how this judge is going to come out, because as Kara said, 
he's already found there was repetitive, pervasive fraud. So I don't think he's going to, maybe he was per, so persuaded by this witness that it'll completely change his mind, but it seems unlikely to me. Well, and the, he, the witness was also totally dismissing how the judge, or what the finding was of the size of the Trump apartment that was, we all could see, vastly inflated. Right. And he, I mean, when Trump testified, he even admitted on the stand that that was a mistake in their financial statements because for several years it said that it was three times the size, meaning three times the value than it actually was. So Trump admitted that that was a mistake. This witness saying that that was an error, but he said it wasn't fraudulent because he said that errors like that happen because these are personal financial statements. They're not audited financial statements. He was trying to draw a distinction there, saying that there are different accounting rules that govern those than other ones, and that they all said all these disclaimers. A lot of these arguments the judge has already rejected. Hmm. Kara Scannell, Ellie Honig, legal drama tonight. Thank you both for being <laughs> here. Also tonight, keep watching, because on Laura Coates Live, former Attorney General Eric Holder is going to be joining her to discuss all of these big legal stories and much more. That'll be at 11 p.m., Eastern. In the meantime, there was a historic ruling in a state that has one of the strictest abortion laws in the nation, Texas. A pregnant woman forced to sue for an emergency abortion at just at 20 weeks. She won that case, but tonight the Texas Attorney General is offering a new warning to her doctor. Plus, Israeli soldiers detaining dozens of men who were stripped to their underwear in Gaza. More on what we are learning about this dramatic scene right after this. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Fresh off of a $500,000 fundraiser and pulling in some powerful endorsements, it's clear who 2024 Republican candidates see as a major threat, at least at this point in the race, other than Donald Trump, of course. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley found herself at the center of attacks that she was fending off or ignoring in Vivek Ramaswamy's case last night during the debate. I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. It's not worth my time to respond to him. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donor. She will not stand up for you. He's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. All the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. <laughs> Here tonight to break down that fiery debate, two political veterans, Van Jones, a former Obama administration official, and David Urban, Republican strategist and former Trump campaign advisor, both CNN political commentators. David, let me start with you, because obviously this is very clearly a big moment for Nikki Haley. We're watching this. I think the question is, you know, even if she's having a good performance at the debates, she's uh, her numbers are obviously going up. I mean, she's still a distant second for Donald Trump. Where does that leave her? Yeah, it leaves her a distant second from Donald Trump, unfortunately, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I, I, I was just uh, re- reviewing kind of the, the the past history, right? My good friend Rick Santorum in 2012 was in the single digits and headed into Iowa and surprised everybody with his upset win over over Mitt Romney. And, and you know, maybe maybe she's hoping for some of that mojo to kind of rub off and 
and, uh, and, and move forward and come from behind victory. But uh, short of something miraculous like that, you know, Donald Trump's going to be the victor here on, in, uh, on the Iowa caucus. At least it appears that way at this point. And then he's going to head into New Hampshire very strong. And then he's going to head to South Carolina very strong. So, you know, I think uh, her, her performance last night was, you know, exemplary. She should thank um, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis, they make her look tough. She gets to punch him in the nose every debate and look tougher. And, um, you know, her standings have continued to increase. And listen, if, if something happens, if Trump stumbles along the way, she will be. You know, she's standing there ready to go. But but short of a, a big stumble, Caitlin, I, I don't know how she gets in front of him. Yeah, I think we're watching also to see what happens in, in our home state. And, Van, you know, at one point in this debate as we were watching this, you saw – Chris Christie, who was standing to her left, you know, we kind of saw this divide in the stage. Where it was mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy on this side, this side, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. And he stood up to, to defend her at one point. And he said this. Powerful. Yeah. While we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting so her. So I want to take this. And you saw the crowd reacting. Uh, because Vivek Ramaswamy is like kindergarten doing COVID. No class. No class. <laughs> I was wondering if you were that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, 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 I, and I thought Chris Christie was at his best because he was standing up to the bully. And he was saying, leave her alone. Now, she didn't need to be rescued. Um, she, was hold, she was holding her own. But I don't think people like to see uh, somebody like a Vivek who's never done anything, never, hardly ever voted for anybody, being personally insulting to someone like her. She took it in a classy way. And I think that Chris Christie was, was wonderful last night. Yeah, and the question was, was it decency? Was it political strategy? But the other thing, David, that we saw last night that was very clear, which was the attacks on Donald Trump. Obviously, that is Chris Christie's style. That was his modus operandi when he got on the debate stage. The question is for the others who were not willing to go after Trump as directly. I mean, I think the furthest that Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis got was talking about the deficit. How does how do you defeat the number one in the race if you don't talk about the number one in the race? Well, that, that, that's Chris Christie's exact point, right? And, and so uh, DeSantis and and Nikki Haley and and Ramaswamy, to the extent that he's going to you know contend uh, be a contender, they, they can't af- uh, afford to alienate that base, and so they're very concerned about how far they can just push because obviously Donald Trump's favorables in, in the state of Iowa are very high, and you know if you speak ill of them, then then you risk you know, getting blowback on yourself. And so it, it's a really tough uh, tightrope to walk. Um, you know, Chris Christie's alleging they're not even bothering to get on the tightrope, let alone walk across it. And so he's the only one out there swinging and, uh, and swinging hard. And, and, you know, he's at, uh, at 3%. So I'm not quite sure that it's, it's, a, it's an effective strategy for him or for anyone else. So again, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a tough, tough thing to see how somebody gets ahead of Donald Trump at this point, at least in Iowa and the early states. Van, do you think that... <clears throat> This ends up where we get a few months down the road, we get to the nomination and, and there's regret among those Republican candidates who who we saw it in the 2016 field. They they just thought that Trump would take care of himself and so they didn't worry about attacking him and he yeah. got the nomination. Well, listen, I mean, the, the Democratic Party, when uh, the establishment was facing down Bernie Sanders, they cleared the field. Um, once once uh, Biden won, everybody, everybody <laughs> else got out. The Republicans just don't seem capable of doing that. Um, now, this is a more narrow field than you saw in, in 2016. They've learned something, but they haven't learned much. And uh, I think the other thing you see, this rallying around um, Nikki uh, by the donor class, which they're trying to problematize, it's really the last gasp of the establishment, trying to figure out some way to hold this guy off. 
and um, uh, Nikki, has, uh, she's got appeal to the grassroots, but she's also got appeal to them. Her fate is really the fate of the establishment in this party. Yeah, and Donald Trump has been using that against her as well. Van Jones, as always. David Urban, thank you both for being here. <laughs> Up next, a House committee now launching an investigation into Harvard, UPenn, MIT after their presidents, under oath and in front of the mics, failed to condemn anti-Semitism on college campuses. The backlash mounting tonight. Tonight, the presidents of three of the top universities in the nation find their schools under a formal congressional investigation after lawmakers said they weren't doing enough to fight anti-Semitism on their campuses. All of them now scrambling to save their jobs, potentially after they were asked what seemed to be a pretty simple question on Capitol Hill. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate their school's code of conduct? Seems easy enough to answer, but not for them necessarily. Here's how they did respond to that question. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. If it, uh, is, if the yes speech or becomes, no. If the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? It can be harassment. Dr. Gay. At Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Joining me tonight is the visiting scholar at the Harvard Divinity School, Rabbi David Wolp, who announced his resignation today from Harvard's Anti-Semitism Advisory Committee. Rabbi, thank you for being here tonight. Thank, just, can we just start with, tell me why you resigned. I resigned because I came to the conclusion that I was not going to be able to make the kinds of changes that I thought Harvard needed through, that, through the committee. And... At a certain point, you realize that you have accountability without authority. That is, people are looking to you to say, look, why aren't these changes happening? You're on the committee. And if you don't think that you can actually make the changes, then the only honorable thing to do is to leave the committee. And I mean, following what we heard just on yeah. Capitol Hill this week, I, you posted a long message about this. What did you make of what the Harvard president had to say in response to that, that straightforward question from the lawmaker there. I felt as though I watched hours of the committee hearing. Um, I think that uh, I probably watched more of it than most people did for obvious reasons. And I thought that, that President Gay and the other presidents were constrained by a sort of legalese and an equivocation that was difficult and painful to watch and that the kind of straightforward answer that the person off the street would give um i think they felt unable to give whether because the lawyers had told them they couldn't or for some other reason and so i thought that this was going to be a bigger it was just going to be a bigger lift than i had imagined i think when i first came on the committee and that there was a culture at the universities, not only at Harvard, but at Harvard in particular, which is where I was on the committee, that 
was just not going to happen anytime soon. Um, I think that everybody who watched the committee hearing sort of, you know, went like that as they listened to one after another after another, not be able to sort of straightforwardly condemn what anybody in the street would straightforwardly condemn. You wrote something that I thought was powerful where you said battling that combination of ideologies is the work of more than a committee or a single university. It is not going to be changed by hiring or firing a single person or posting on X or yelling at people who don't post as you wish, when you wish, as though posting is the summation of one's moral character. This is the task of educating a generation and also a vast unlearning. What does that look like in practice? So in practice, that means that like people who say, oh, obviously to fix this, you just have to get rid of that person or you just have to change this. They're underestimating the fact that this is a deep cultural pattern. The idea that there is a class of oppressors and a class of oppressed, no matter where you go or what you do. And therefore you always know who's right and who's wrong in any conflict. And you can see Jews and Israelis suffering, but they must be wrong because after all they're oppressors. This is a this is an ideology that pervades the universities, the elite universities, and many, I would say, um, outside the university. And they have to unlearn that ideology and start to learn to see individuals as individuals and understand that people have to be judged the same way that they would wish to be judged. And that prejudice on the left is no better than prejudice on the right. And that seeing a class of people as bad, no matter who they are, is intrinsically intellectually lazy and morally corrupt. Rabbi David Wolp, it was a powerful resignation statement. Thank you for joining us tonight and happy Hanukkah as well. Happy Hanukkah. Up next, as we noted at the top of the hour, there's been a major abortion ruling in a state that has almost totally banned the procedure. It's the first of its kind since the fall of Roe versus Wade, but we're still hearing more from the state's attorney general tonight. More on that in a moment. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is warning a doctor who was authorized by a judge to perform an abortion that she could still face penalties for that. The legal threat coming after the judge ruled in a favor of a pregnant woman today who had sued the state to allow her doctor to perform that abortion despite the state's strict ban that has very few and narrow exceptions. This is believed to be one of the first attempts in the U.S. where someone is trying to get a court-ordered abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In her lawsuit, Kate Cox, who is 20 weeks pregnant, said her unborn baby had been diagnosed with trisomy 18. It's a genetic abnormality that almost always has a fatality, means a fatality before birth or soon after. Her doctor told her that her condition would not only put her life at risk, but also threaten her ability to be able to have children in the future. Tonight, Kate Cox talked about what the judge's decision meant to her. 
it's a hard time. Um, you know, even with, you know, being hopeful with um, the decision that came from the hearing this morning, there's, there's still, we're going through the loss of a, of a child. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know, so um, it's hard, you know. I'm joined now by her attorney, Mark Heron, who is the senior counsel for the Center for Reproductive Rights. And Mark, thank you for being here tonight. I mean, you could hear just the emotion in her voice there. What was her response to to what the judge ruled today after hearing the arguments from y'all's side and also obviously from the state who was trying to to block this from happening? Well, uh, first and foremost, relief. Right, relief that um, a judge heard what she is going through and understood that um, Kate is someone who very much wants to get pregnant, very much wants to expand her uh, family and wants to preserve her ability to have kids again in the future. And right now, the procedure that she needs to be able to do so is an abortion because if she were to continue carrying her current pregnancy to term and deliver, she is at significant risk of losing her future fertility. She is um, in her, she's, she has health risks, her life is at risk. And um, it, it was, you know, she's grateful that um, the court system heard uh, that she needs an exception under Texas law. Texas law is incredibly confusing and, and the doctors, um, hands have been tied. And so it's been incredibly frustrating for her to go through the system and now be told as a lifelong Texan that Texas law prevents you from getting the health care you need. Yeah, I saw where she said that she and her husband, they knew abortion was illegal, but they didn't know just how, how strict it was when it came to the exceptions until she needed one of those exceptions. Mark, I wonder what you make of the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, who came out tonight and, and was saying that the hospitals, the doctors, that they're not insulated from civil and criminal liability for violating that law, despite what the judge said today, that this procedure can go forward. Kaylin, this is shameful. Um, the attorney general of the state of Texas is telling everyone that a, that a judge's order, that a judge's injunction is essentially meaningless and that he's going to come after doctors and hospitals um, and that they're exposing themselves to criminal liability, to the threat of lawsuits, to loss of, of professional licenses, if they're following a judge's order. We have a legal system in this country. We have rules. We have a rule of law. This is a democracy. And for the attorney general to come out and threaten um, hospitals, doctors, and other people for following a judge's order, it's shameful. I, I've never seen anything quite like it. And to be honest, this is exactly why doctors across the state of Texas are terrified of providing essential health care to their patients. Because now suddenly Ken Paxton is going to come along and second guess their decisions. So now what does every pregnant person who needs an abortion in the state of Texas, who needs to rely on the exceptions, going to come and ask Ken Paxton, um, in your medical opinion, do I finally qualify for an abortion? That's not how this, this uh, system can work. It is unworkable, it is untenable, and um, 
you know, the, the rule of law has got to be followed here. Mark Heron, what your client has been through here, it's just so painful and to go through it in such a public way is, is remarkable. Thank you for, for coming on tonight to talk about that. Thank you. And for more perspective on what women in Texas are facing, I'm joined here by Dr. Megan Ranney, an ER doctor and the dean of the Yale School of Public Health. It's not just women in Texas. It's my home state of Alabama. It's a lot of states where they have these really strict exceptions. What do you make of, of how the state, they're disputing her doctor who found that she did need this, they believe, not just because of the baby, but also for her own life and her own future ability to, to conceive children? Listen, at the end of the day, the choice to have an abortion is a medical decision between a woman and a doctor. In this case in particular, you have a woman who is a mom of two, who had a wanted pregnancy, who has been told that the fetus is not going to survive, or if it does survive, is going to die very soon after birth, and who has been told that her own health is at risk by carrying this fetus to term. She made a choice with her doctor that the safest thing for her and her family is to terminate this pregnancy. And now she is being told that she does not have autonomy over her body. And her physician is being told that they cannot follow their Hippocratic oath to first do no harm. I will point out that lawyers are not doctors. Doctors are not lawyers. I don't play one ever, right? I will never try to make a legal decision, but I will help my patients make decisions about what's best for them and then respect that choice. And in this case, neither the patient nor the physician is being allowed to do that. And, and the state was arguing, I mean, there's a huge question of, of whether or not this forces the state to more clearly define what is allowed. But the state was arguing just last week, quote, if a woman is bleeding or has amniotic fluid running down her leg, then the problem is not with the law. That is with the doctors. Clearly that would qualify for the medical emergency exception. So if she has to come to court to make that happen, that is not the state's fault. That's from Paxton's office. What did you make of that? As an ER doctor, I find that somewhat incredible. I have taken care of countless women who come in with ectopic pregnancies, so a pregnancy that's outside of their uterus that bursts and fills their abdomen with blood. I have taken care of women whose placenta have separated off from their uterus. They're literally bleeding out, threatening their own life. They don't life. have time to go to court. They don't have time to go to court, and my job is to save their life. And to say that somehow we have to get a lawyer involved in that moment instead of doing what's necessary to save her life, to protect her family, to protect her future ability to have children should she want it, is infuriating. Dr. Rennie, I mean, it's just such a notable case here. And, and just the fact that she is actually pregnant seeking this, this help. It's not a case where we see where they go and ask for access. She's actually pregnant and needs the help now. Thank you for helping us break it all down. Thank you for Thank being you. here. It's great to have you in person. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. And of course, tonight, as we noted there with the rabbi just a few moments ago, Jews around the world are marking this first night of Hanukkah. It's a celebration of light, overcoming a lot of darkness that we are in right now. Hope shining in Israel, families of hostages lighting menorah candles tonight. Plus, we have big news out of Gaza, really striking images as this war against Hamas rages on. We'll tell you what you're looking at here right after the break. Tonight, exactly two months since, the, since Hamas viciously slaughtered Israelis on October 7th, we're seeing stark new images from inside Gaza this is in the southern city of Khan Yunis. People searching through the rubble of a building after an Israeli airstrike hit. This fighting in the war is continuing to rage on as these pictures emerge today of Israeli soldiers standing over what appears to be a mass detention of men. You can see dozens of them are stripped to their underwear. They're kneeling on the street. They're all wearing blindfolds. 
The exact circumstances, the dates of, uh, of what is happening here, it's still unclear tonight. We asked the Israel Defense Forces for comment. They have yet to respond to CNN on what you are looking at in these pictures. I'm joined now by CNN political and foreign policy analyst Barack Ravid, one of the best sourced reporters in the region. Barack, I should note, you know, we geolocated these images. They are coming from northern Gaza. But CNN's also hearing from at least some of our sources that some of them are civilians. They have no known affiliation to a militant group. Uh, what else have you learned about what we're seeing here? I think that's completely uh, right, Caitlin. Uh, and even I think the IDF is not uh, um, saying that those are all uh, Hamas militants uh, that were uh, arrested. Uh, what happened, uh, according to my understanding, is that um, uh, this happened, as you said, in northern Gaza, where in parts of northern Gaza there are still shelters where civilians um, uh, stay. And I think that uh, uh, what we see in those pictures are people that the IDF encountered in those uh, areas and uh, looked at them as suspects. And uh, according to what I heard from Israeli officials, some of them who the IDF think have uh, connections to Hamas were taken, uh, um, were arrested and taken into Israel and the rest are still in Gaza. And it's unclear what exactly the IDF is going to do with them. Yeah, and they haven't said, but as we are seeing what's happening in the fighting, I mean, Brock, we did confirm today the son of a member of the war cabinet, Israel's former top military commander, Lieutenant General Gadi Eisenkot. His son was killed in northern Gaza. I mean, one, it's a reminder of how most families in Israel either have or know soldiers who are serving in the reserves right now. But what more are you learning about the circumstances around his death? Uh, what happened there was that his unit, um, which is a, a commando unit, was searching for tunnels in uh, the town of Jabalia in northern Gaza. And when they encountered the tunnel and started excavating it, a booby trap uh, went off and uh, an IED went off and he was badly hurt. He was uh, taken with a, with a helicopter to a hospital in Israel, but they couldn't uh, save his life. And you know, one of the most tragic parts of this story was that his father, at the time, was at the headquarters of Division 160, 162. And this is the division that his son's unit is part of that division. And while he was there in the war room, he got the update that his son was badly injured. It's just, and I should notice him as Master Sergeant Gall Eisenkot. I just obviously speaks to how personal this is for, for the people who are directing the, the war fighting that you're seeing playing out. And, you know, speaking of the, the troops, Brock, we saw Prime Minister Netanyahu visiting Israeli forces today on the call, as he also had this call, his 16th, I should note, since October 7th, with President Biden. It had an incredibly long readout talking about hostages, talking about protecting civilians in Gaza, talking about getting more aid to them. You know, what's your sense of, of why this was the first call that they had in a week and a half? Yeah, it, I, I agree with you that it was uh, when I when I heard when I first heard about this call, I said to myself, wow, that's they haven't spoken for several days now after that. In the first few weeks of the war, they spoke almost every day. And I think now it's been something like a week without them uh, uh, speaking. I think the main reason uh, that they spoke was. Um, the Israeli cabinet decision uh, yesterday to uh, increase the amount of uh, fuel that Israel allows uh, into Gaza. This came after 
quite strong pressure from President Biden and his advisors. And what's, what was most interesting to me in this readout that the White House put out is that it said that Biden welcomed the cabinet decision, but at the same time, he said, this is not enough. We need to do uh, much more. And I think that the Biden administration uh, um, understood that this is where it can go in and have the most influence on putting pressure on Israel to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza because it knows that the Israeli government knows that in order to get backing from the Biden administration, it would have to do much more on the humanitarian front. Yeah, which initially they resisted, but still, I mean, as we can see from what's happening in Gaza, not even close to being enough. Barack Ravid, thank you for that great reporting. Thank you, Caitlin. There's obviously a lot going on in the world tonight. We're continuing to track those updates. There's also a lot of good happening in the world. Talk about CNN heroes that you want to meet. That's right after a quick break. For many of us, this time of year is about giving back. But for CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute that salutes 10 extraordinary people, they put others first all year long. The star-studded event appears live this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern here on CNN. Here's a look of what you'll see. Sunday on CNN. We provide bilingual education for migrant and refugee children at the U.S.-Mexico border. Support the extraordinary people making a difference in our world. We are rebuilding the colonies here in the Florida Keys. I'm going to ensure that people in Ghana have access to health care. I see a pet in need and a person who cares for them dearly. Trauma can be a pathway for growth. We install child-friendly reading space in the barbershop. We all are connected because of the shared experience of having an incarcerated parent. There should be no homeless pets, period, none. I don't want to be defined as a victim of my circumstances. I do want to make sure that they get all the attention and love that they deserve. CNN Heroes, an all-star tribute, Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. It is going to be a great show hosted by Anderson Cooper and Laura Coates. You don't want to miss it. I'm going to be there watching as well. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. We'll be back tomorrow night. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.